So glad that you're joining us this morning, and I want to welcome you to this new series called On the Brink. I want to take a moment, too, to welcome many of you watching and listening online. Again, we want to say to you that if you're serving here this morning and you're not in this auditorium, thank you so much. We also want to start acknowledging all sorts of groups that are starting to meet around our sermons and small groups in Canada and around the world, and we want to acknowledge you. We know that you're joining us, and we want to say hello to you uh, this morning. All of us would, uh, I think, know in the condition we're in, called humans, that we have thousands of firsts. There are thousands of experiences that each one of us come up to that are firsts. And when we have those first experiences, uh, there is risk. It's the first time you lose a tooth, the first time you kiss someone, the first time you go to a dance. You know what I'm talking about? Right now, my daughter is losing a tooth. Uh, Do you remember when you lost your first tooth? Uh, I, I don't. Currently, her tooth is sort of animalistically out like this. Uh, and she, she will not let me pull it out. She looks more animal than human, depending on her smile. I keep going to her and saying, Hannah, trust me, this is good. Let me take it out. And then I go near her, and you can imagine she screams and says, you're hurting me. I haven't even touched her. Um, and I'm like, babe, i got to get the tooth out. But why is she afraid? Because she is afraid that it's going to hurt. And yes, it's going to. And, and it's uncomfortable and weird. But I keep telling her, oh, honey, oh, honey, there's good news of great joy. When the tooth comes out, there is this person named the Tooth Fairy. And he will come. And he will reward your honesty and your, and your courage. And, and let me tell you, inflation has happened. And he gives like way more than 25 cents now. This is good. This is good. And she doesn't believe me. And she screams. And anyway, that's fine. Do you remember your first kiss? Do you remember how awkward it was? Do you remember being at that grade seven or eight dance, standing against the wall, looking across and wondering if you would do it, and then one person, maybe you were that person, actually risked and ventured out and then had the opportunity for great success or what? Humiliation if the person said yes or no, but if they said yes, do you remember how you danced? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? I wish actually grade eights danced like that more. I'm very concerned at how they dance now. Um, uh, Leave room for Jesus and everyone else now, please. (laughs) Everyone else. Um, Here's the point. In small things and large things, when we come to a position where something new is about to happen that we've been preparing for or not, And then we're on the brink. We're like right there, whether it's that first kiss or first dance or losing a tooth or anything else. What happens in that moment? We start calculating if we want to do this. Because when there is risk, our comfort is threatened. And not only that, fear kicks in. And we're not sure if it's actually worth the risk because we're not sure if the reward is more significant than what is. Now that's true in small things and that is true in massive things. And that is exactly where we are in our journey as a church at this very moment. We at C4 are genuinely on the brink. And the question before us is, are we all together willing to step in to what God has been preparing this church for over eight or ten years? See, this series, this mini-series for the next five weeks is asking these questions. What are the lessons we together as this church community, we together the people of God assigned to this church, what must we see and learn and watch out for as we begin to move into what God has promised this church in this region? What happens as we first start stepping into what God has given us? 
What must we do? What, what must we watch out for? What will our own hearts and the evil one, and what could we together do that actually might move us away from what God has already started among us? See, this series is not about believing God for some future promise, and this series is not sort of just preparing for a possible God move or a new God season. This is already taking place. This mini-series is about believing and obeying in the first initial days and steps of God's larger move among us. For the next five weeks, we together, hopefully as a church united, we all in this together are going to, as Dave said, look at the life of Joshua to see and be warned and be encouraged to keep following God as we are on the brink and as we are going to be asked to risk more. Simply put, let me say it this way. We are on the brink of what God has already been doing. We are now on the brink of a fuller expression of God's promises to this church We are on the brink of a larger move of God. Now, the story of Joshua is bound up to a place called the Promised Land. And that, of course, very quickly helps us identify what we need to talk about. But it begs the question, too, okay, what is the space and what is the place that God is calling us as C4, as a church, to go into? Now, if you know your Bible well, and I hope you are all working hard to know it because it's God's word, we all know that the promised land is a literal place. And the promised land, though, was a foreshadow and has its full fulfillment, of course, in the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and of course, our salvation, the new heavens and the new earth. That is what the promised land is truly fulfilled in. But the question I am asking in this series with you, my friends, is this. What is the promised land given to us by God in this season, in 2014, as a church? What are the promises given to this church in this region? And why must we continue to walk in them? Now, let me just stop for a moment, because some of you are brand new to our church, and others have been with us for years. And I need to re-remind every one of us, in a very short way, what the promises are that have been given to our community. What is the unique promised land we are being called into? And never forget, and let me start this way. This is a vision. And I love one uh, definition. It goes like this. Vision is a clear mental picture of a preferable future given by God. And so if you want to look at what God is calling our church into, it's simple. You can break it down into two things. The first one Dave has already prayed about this morning, and it's this. We believe that God, he decided to do this, not us. He has sovereignly initiated a conversation with this church about revival and awakening. And one of the promises we were given was out of 2 Chronicles chapter 5. That is the passage where Solomon dedicates the temple of God, and the Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory, comes into the temple, fills the temple, and overwhelms the priests. It says the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Now, you need to again hear this. We, and there's a whole background to this, we believe that we've been given this promise. In other words, God has said, you begin to ask me to come in a way I've never come and I'm gonna show up just like this and my spirit is gonna go across the whole church. There's gonna be a season of genuine historic revival. The priest, which is all of us, by the way, will be overwhelmed by the very powerful presence of God. So the first promise was for revival. 
Now, if you know anything about genuine revival, I'm not talking about tents and smoke and lights. I'm talking about God really showing up. Every revival in church history is marked in a different way. And so when we were given this promise, we were also given a definition. We were told what it would look like when Jesus showed up in a unique way for a period of time. And it was out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it reads like this. We're confident, I say, we'd prefer to be away from the body at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or we're away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. Here's the point. When we were given this promise, God said to our community, when I show up for a season uniquely, the lordship of Jesus is going to explode across the church and people are going to start wanting Jesus more than what they love in this life and everyone's going to start walking in a new way because they are going to realize we're all really going to face Jesus. And so we were given a very direct promise of revival and awakening and at center, of course, is the lordship. The other part of the promise we have is now what we call our vision statement. And it's this, to become a regional church of 10,000 meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. Now, some of you are going, well, John, how did you arrive at that? How did you test that? You know, was it bad tacos? Did you just want to be, like, listen, I'm going to encourage all of you, and we'll, we'll, we'll mark these on the podcast. There were three or four messages Dave and I preached where we outlined the whole process of how we listened and discerned where this came from. And and I want you to re-listen to that if you've been with our church or listen to it for the first time. Because this isn't pie in the sky. This is given from the Lord. And I just want to start as I begin this series by, by saying this. What an unbelievable promised land he's decided to give this church. Like, I just want you to sit back. Who wouldn't, in their right Christian mind, want to be be part of a sovereignly given revival? People spend generations, generations pray and don't see this. And God, because he sovereignly decided, has decided to, to, to turn his eyes to this church and this region and move. Oh, yes, Lord, please. Who wouldn't want to have a personal renewal? Who wouldn't want to see an awakening where not just hundreds, but thousands of people sovereignly, unexpectedly starting love Jesus, getting baptized by fire and by, and by water and seeing their lives change? Who wouldn't want this to be true? I do. And not only that, that we get to participate in thousands of lives, physically and virtually over the next few years or, or 10 years or whatever it is. I mean, this, this is a genuinely profound promised land. And I want to again say, this is God-initiated. We did not wake up one day and say, well, you know, this is what... The, no, no, God's decided this. And this is not all future. This is happening among us. See, the reason why we're doing this series right now is because it's not just, well, we hope this happens, fingers crossed. No. See, personal renewal has been spreading since 2010. Hundreds and hundreds of people have publicly and privately shared that their lives are getting reoriented towards Jesus. They're praying in new ways. They're confessing sin. Marriages are being healed. People are being deeply transformed. The biblical signs of revival and awakening are already being seen among us, and many people are coming and joining us. So many of you have actually come and said things like this. I don't even know why I'm at C4. And yet I was at, you know, somewhere else and God told me I'm supposed to show up at this church. Who are you people and why am I here? And we say, oh, welcome, get ready. 
So at the heart of this, we need to ask a very significant question this morning, and here it is. What do we need to learn out of Joshua's life and the people of God Because as they stepped into God's promises, they made some very significant steps forward and some terrible, terrible mistakes. So most people, if they were starting the series, would preach out of Joshua chapter 1. They would preach out of like a verse like this, uh, be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. But not us. I refuse to start in the book of Joshua. Actually, I'll preach next week there. See, the first needed question we all need to wrestle with, the first needed lesson, the call, God's test for us as a church, as we're now on the border of the promised land given to us, as we're on the brink, as God's greater move is already being evidenced in small ways among us, is this. Are you as a people, as a whole group, willing to trust me? Are you willing to keep risking? Are you willing to go where I've been preparing this church for over eight years? years to go. And so as we start, we're not starting in Joshua chapter 1. We need to start 40 years earlier back in the book of Numbers. So if you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. A book you rarely are in and you should be there more. Okay. Numbers 13. 40 years before Joshua 1. The people of God are on the brink of the promised land. And the question facing them is, would they jump in or would they not? This is three years after the exodus, the Red Sea, the plagues. All the problems, all the possibilities are now present. Everything is at stake. Their liberation, their faith in God, their trust. What would win the day? Everyone ready? Would security and fear win the day? Or would biblically informed risk win the day? And here's the greater question. Everyone look up for a moment. Would they still act like slaves even though they already were free people? Would they risk? And I want to just say as we get into this series, this is not blind risk. See, here's the difference between just stepping off the edge with no information. God had already said to the people of God, I'm going to give you this land. See, biblical risk is not eyes closed. It is saying since God has promised, I will now walk with him. That's what biblical risk is. And so he comes and says to the people, I've given you these promises. I've brought you out of the Exodus situation. It's been three years. It's time to get involved in a deeper form of biblical faith. I want you to risk. Now here's something so significant for us this morning. Why does God want to do it? And why does God do this in every generation? Well, here's the answer. God continually wants to explode the myth of safety. He wants to deliver each generation of God followers from the enchantment called security. This is done time and time in the Exodus. They're living in the desert, 1.3 million people, no latrines, no water, no food, and yet notice how God provides every single time. He is slowly weaning them off their old way of thinking, their natural, non-faith-rooted worldview, and he's saying, if you are going to be a genuine follower of God, risk, faith, and trust are central. So what happens? What happens when this generation or our generation of followers of God choose not to escape the enchantment of security and the mirage of safety? The answer is simple. We waste our lives. We waste our lives. 
We don't lose our salvation. This is not about salvation. This is about accomplishing specific tasks of God in each generation. So now we come to Numbers 13. Three years has passed since the people of God came out of Egypt. God has already promised them anyways. And faith and waste literally hangs in the air. Now on the brink, Moses, God's leader from the time, hears God speak. Numbers 13, one reads like this. And the Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And so at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out. All of them were leaders from the Israelites. So I want you to catch this this morning. The whole community is represented by 12 spies. They are each leaders in their own tribes. But let me add this. Again, notice it right here. God has promised to give them the land. See, this is a done deal. Spies, no spies. Information, no information. When God opens a door, it cannot be closed. And when God closes a door, it cannot be open. And so right here, he says, by the way, just want to tell you, Send the guys in, but I've already given this to you. Hugs, everyone. We're going to be okay. Now, you can read all the lists of names. I'm not going to do that because I'm not that good. Keep going down. At the end of the list of names, look at verse 16. This is really, I've never caught this before. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the name. And Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. Now, I have never read this that I can remember. Now, I think if you've done church for a bit, you may know who Joshua is. He was born a slave in Egypt. He was probably 40 years old, give or take. He was an active participant in the Exodus. He was actually Moses's military commander. As 1.3 million refugees were in the promised land, they were attacked by a group called the Amalekites. Joshua led the army against them. And Joshua is Moses' aide. And when Joshua walked up with Moses, and Moses got the Ten Commandments, he was the one who was allowed the closest proximity to God's presence other than Moses. But now here, I want you to catch this. This is significant for the next five weeks. Out of the 12 spies chosen, Moses only changes his name. And the name change is very significant for our church. See, his old name, Hoshea, means he saved or just meant salvation. But now Joshua means Yahweh saves, God saves. See, the name change itself moves the whole community to see that self-trust and self-sufficiency and self-salvation is absolutely not true. And God, when he shows up, that's when salvation takes place. And by the way, Joshua... His name is the root for someone else. Anyone know? Sort of significant. Uh, Oh, right, Jesus. Right. So I want you to catch this this morning. That even the name change is setting up the conversation for the battle that's going to happen in the hearts of God's people. Now, it says in verse 17, when Moses sent them to explore the land of Canaan, he said, go through, and he gives all these lists. He says, I want you to check out the land. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it fertile? Is it not fertile? Are there large cities? Are they fortified or are they not? Why is Moses doing this? Moses is doing this because he's thinking militarily, and he's also thinking like a city planner. He's got to take 1.3 million refugees and militarily go into a land, take it over, and then resettle the land. Moses is involved in deep faith, promptings, and also strategic planning. He moves in both because he understands that's reality. Now, let me just stop for a moment 
and I want to say this for all of us here and you online, we hold that value here at C4 very highly. We as leaders here live between what we call prompting and planning. Every major decision and small decision we make in this church, we pray, we listen, we test, then we plan, and then we act. We do not hold either as wrong or more spiritual. Both are key and both are rooted in gifts. We pray and ask God, what is your heart for this church since you own it? What is your heart for this community? And then we test it to make sure, again, it's not crazy. We go through the lens of scripture. We go through leadership. We, dis- we, we walk through this and then we plan using every every tool and every resource at our disposal. We believe in prompting and planning because that is always how God acts. And so here Moses does it. And then 40 days later, it says that the spies come back. You probably know the story. Verse 26, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community. And they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses his account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. And then it says, notice this, and here is the fruit. Now, if you read the whole story, in verse 23, it describes the fruit. It says that they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes, and two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. Like, these grapes were so big, it takes two grown men just to carry them. I mean, this is before right? Everything we do to manipulate fruit. This is serious fruit, okay? And so they walk in, and I want you to catch the power of this, because we read this in such a small, almost childlike way, and, and we miss sometimes the profundity. Listen, they walk in with some pomegranates and some grapes, and we're like, yeah, I got that at lobbyists yesterday, not, not interested. Listen, this is the first time this slave group had ever seen the promised land. They're not in it yet, but can you imagine as the guys walk through, people pulling off grapes and going, freedom's coming. See, this is the first time they get to taste and see and experience what God has promised them. Milk and honey, so different from the desert. Yes, they were given water and bread and quail, every one of those miracles, but there's no variety. But now they get to move from survival to choice. And this is the first glimpse of freedom. That fruit represents the first glimpse of freedom out of their full slavery. They're saying, look, this is a great land. This is a noble land, a land that we have dreamed of. Uh, Think about Egypt versus this promised land. See, there's food and land. Think about this. There is space, and it would be theirs. They would move from starving to food, from survival to plenty, from no home as refugees to citizens and home, from non-safety to a place of safety. See, the people of God are going, Oh, yes. God, we prayed this prayer for 430 years, and now we're there, and I'm watching the fruit come like this. This is it. This is what my grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather petitioned you for, and I get to be the person who stands here. Profound. But there are two problems lurking underneath the surface already. It's like a terrible horror film that everything looks okay on the top and everyone's swimming and Jaws is coming to kill you. Here's the first thing. They're human beings. They're no different than us. They don't like risk and we don't like risk. Comfort always trumps faith. There's a deeper thing going on though that's even more concerning and here it is and I've already made mention of it. See, these people were slaves. 
These people were the slaves of slaves of slaves. See, they had been in slavery for at least 400 years. It is hard to break 400 years of social conditioning. See, being a slave in that context breaks you. It confines you. It tells you you cannot walk upright or any other way. You cannot have a future. There is no hope. There is no promise. And oh, by the way, slavery in societies builds deeply controlling structures that dedicate... not dedicate, uh, that dictate everything for you, how you think, where you go. And so you live in a box created by someone else. But these slaves no longer are in the box, and yet the question is, are they going to still live like they're in the box though they've been set free from the box? See, they've been free, and they've been screaming out to God for freedom for over 400 years, and now they're free, and the question is, are they going to go back to the abuser that they wanted freedom from because they are already familiar with it? How many of us have experienced in our own lives going back to something or a person or a sin that we hate because it is better to know it than go and go into the unknown? So now you have all these people. God is the great box breaker. He's broken the box. He's brought them to the promised land. This is the answer of multiple generations of intercession and faithful prayer. And this gets to be the generation that gets to see the answer. And then we go, well, of course they're going to step in. Look at the next verse. One little word. But. But. Yes, the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's unbelievable. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and large. And we saw descendants of Anak there and the Amalekites live in the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country and and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. But, but, nevertheless, see, this isn't just fear. This isn't just an aversion to risk or the slave mentality. There are real problems here. There is real armies, real people, and there is no yes we can with God or, or God has promised no. All you begin to hear in the crowd is yes, well, no. We can't because we have never. We've always done it this way. Like, look at the reality. Look what's in front of us. Come on, be realistic. Be, be honest. There, there's not one nation. There are many. Remember the Amalekites? They already tried murdering all of us once in the desert. And then there's the Jebusites in that, in that place. They wouldn't be removed, by the way, till David's time. See, they're on the brink. This is the moment. This is the crux. This is the time in the movie you don't know which way it's going to go. Will they step in? Will they walk in answered prayer of 430 years? This is the test. This is the question of leadership, faith, the place of risk. All of God's people are being tested. I want you to catch the power. 1.3 million lives are at stake. A three-year journey. Is this a real relationship with God or is it something else? It says in verse 30, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. In Hebrew it says, He hushed them. Shh. And they all went, Shh. As that quiet fell over the crowd, Caleb does not dispute the report. I love this. Caleb does not get up and go, Oh no, it's better than you think. He says, No, it's true. Everything they're saying is true. I'm one of the spies. Yes. All that's true. It is bad. It's impossible. It's dangerous. But we can certainly do it. Now, how could he say this? Is he just full of faith? Is he an idiot? Is he just deceived? Pie in the sky? No, no. No, no. Catch what Caleb is saying. He says, I know God. 
I have walked with him and so have all of you. God has already promised the land to us. We know this. And he had lived through it all. He was an adult and a slave and God set him free. He saw the plagues against the Egyptians. He walked through the Red Sea with the rest of them. He had seen God's palpable presence, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He was there and watched the terrifying presence of God in the mountain when Moses was given the Ten Commandments. He saw rock turn into water. He saw manna from heaven. He saw quail show up when they never should have. He knew that God had not brought them into this desert to die. His God did not change. And he stood up and says, are you joking me? Three years. We have seen God move time and time again. Of course we can take the land. See, let me say this. Side note, C4, don't you write off the last three years. You can do it in a moment. He says, of course, don't buy in to the mirage of security. Don't let fear, don't kiss the idol of fear. Don't buy into the myth that we're going to be safe by what we do. No, no, God has said go, so let's go. But, but, verse 31, see it? But, but the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than us. We can't do this. This is fact. This is impossible. This is not strategic, wise, feasible. And as they stopped looking at God, and as they literally threw out three years of profound miracles, they moved from negativity, and this is what always happens, from negativity, then to exaggeration. From exaggeration, they become paralyzed, and then chaos breaks out. Verse 32, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. Here's the exaggeration, the lie. The land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there are of great size. It does the opposite of what Caleb has done. The silence that was so godlike is now gone. And now it's an evil report. It's falsehood. It's strife. It exaggerates. The land we are in is no longer milk and honey. It is now devouring people. It is infertile, unstable, warlike, and unforgiving. And then they go a step further. Go to the next verse. They say, well, and oh, by the way, you really don't want to follow Moses or Aaron. This is so dangerous because we saw Nephilim there. And you go, well, who are those? Is this like a Lord of the Rings film? Well, sort of. The Nephilim in Genesis 6 were the most famous warriors of their time. And some people believe that actually they were a race produced when demons had sex with women and produced a half-demonic, antichrist-like race. This is what you tell your kids to scare them about in ancient times. And they come and say, you want to know who's in the land? Those people are in the land. Like, don't you dare. And, and oh, by the way, they keep going. They say, listen, listen, this is so serious. Let's move from facts. Oh, facts, now fear shows up. Fear turns to fantasy. Now it turns to failure. And let's just finish off communal faith. This is what it felt like for us, verse 33. And we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. I don't know if you've ever hunted grasshoppers. I used to. Anyone used to do that? Yeah, yeah, we're all terrible people. Okay. (laughs) Grasshoppers are interesting because they're all about camouflage. They're all about not being seen. You know if you step towards a grasshopper, what does it do? It flees. I I learned this this week, uh, or relearned this, that grasshoppers only live in one patch their whole life. They go nowhere else. They spend their life in one place and they do not move. If you actually take a grasshopper and you put your hand over it, they stop singing immediately. What a profound expression. We're grasshoppers. 
They're so big and we're so small. And every time we got close to them, we stopped singing. We stopped being what we were. And and we don't want to move out of this patch because this patch, we know this patch. We understand this patch. Don't you know how dangerous this is? Let's just keep camouflaged. Let's believe that we believe that we're going to be okay somehow else. That night, verse chapter one, chapter 14, verse 1, that night all the people of the community raised their voices, wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said, if we'd only died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be, what? You've got to be joking me. What? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to, to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We need to go back to our abuse and our slavery. We need to go back to no freedom. Let's go back to us being not treated as humans but animals. Let's go back to death. Let's go back to the box that we asked to get out of. Why? Because we know it. Because we hate it, but it's safe. I hate it, but I know what I know. And that's more preferable than stepping into something I cannot, everyone ready, control. Let's go back. To everything we've been saved from. There's a story, true story, during one of the great wars that have happened in the Middle East. A spy was captured and sent into death by the general of a very famous Persian army. The general, a man of intelligence and compassion, adopted a strange and a very unusual custom in such cases. He permitted the condemned person to make a choice. The prisoner could either face a firing squad or walk through a door painted black. At the moment of the execution drawing near, the general ordered the spy to be brought before him. And after this short final interview, the the primary purpose was simple. What would you like? The firing squad or the black door? This was never an easy decision and for this prisoner the same. And he soon made it know he much preferred, he much preferred the firing squad to the unknown horrors of that black door. So not long after, the the volley of shots in the courtyard announced the grim sentence was now fulfilled. The general stared at his own boots and turned to his aide and said, You see how it is with men? They will always prefer the known way to the unknown. It is characteristic of all people to be afraid of the undefined. And yet I gave him choice. What lies behind the black door, said the aide. The general said, Well, actually, freedom. And very few have been brave enough to take it. The difference between that true story and us and the people of God then is this. The black door is not ominous because our God is in front of the door, behind the door, and he has given us promises. And yet, let's be honest. It is true in our own lives that we go back to sin and addiction because we are used to it. We get medicated by it. We're comforted by it. And deeper than that, this church is still on the brink, wondering fully if we are going to believe and follow God into the future he has decided to give us. And he has said, go. The question is, will we? Moses and Aaron, verse 5, fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, new name, Caleb, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes And said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people in the land. I love this. Because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. 
But the Lord, he is with us. Do not be afraid of them. In the midst of absolute chaos, Joshua and Caleb stay up and said, no, the ten spies are wrong. They're actually now lying to you. Do not listen. God is with us. Moses and Aaron fall face down and start interceding to the God that has already answered the prayers of the community. And they say, don't do this. This is why God has brought us out. This is why we are here. This is our purpose in this time. Most of us know the story that the people of God say no. And the only people, and we'll discover this next week, that get to walk into the promised land in their 80s is Joshua and Caleb. 1.3 million people die in the desert because they said no. Here's the one thing I know about our God. Our God will never be thwarted. You can say amen to that. He's sovereign. And when God chooses to move, he does it for his own glory, not for anyone else's glory. And here's the second thing. If one community says no, he'll just move to another one. He will not be thwarted. Saul said no, so he chose David. This generation said no, so he went to the next generation. He is going to do what he is going to do. The question is, just with who? He's looking for willing partners. And so what we see here is a great, great misstep by the people of God. Now this series is preparatory. This series, like I said, is not looking back, but is now focusing on the moment and our coming future. And I want to encourage all of you, and by the way, please, this, I really beg your attention. I want to encourage this church because I don't believe at this moment we're deciding to die in the desert. And let me tell you why. Here's the first thing. There are large clusters of grapes all throughout this church. I'm seeing more and more clusters of grapes, metaphorically that is, okay, than I've ever seen before. I've been part of this church since I was 15. I've been on staff for 15 years. The hundreds of personal stories of renewal where people are really saying, I am deeply changed, grapes. The prayer change in this church, where the prayer level in this church is starting to go through the roof in connect groups, in our own hearts, even before service, grapes. The worship culture that has changed in this church, grapes. The amount of conversions taking place where people are standing and saying, I was a new ager, an atheist, I was a Muslim, I have met Jesus, I'm following him, grapes. The amount of baptisms we've seen in the last year and a half, grapes. The signs and wonders and deliverances where people have been healed or set free from the evil one, very amazing grapes. The even changing in our structures and our governance as we are making more room structurally so the nursery will be ready for thousands to come, grapes. The change in our giving, big, beautiful grapes. And the growing presence of God among us. So many of you have come to me and other staff and say, listen, I've done church my whole life. You're no more special than the church I came from. But can you please tell me why God seems to be so present here? And I say, I don't know. It's decided because he decided to. Grapes. See, this is a very critical moment. We are on the brink of what he has promised. We are now tasting for the first time what we have prayed for for years. And let me say, my former senior pastor who stood in this pulpit for 22 years used to pray a prayer. And he used to pray this. And many of you don't know him and some of you have forgotten. He used to say, oh God, oh God, make Durham a hard place to go to hell from. And he didn't get to stay to see this. But I tell you, God is answering that cry. He's answering that cry. 
So there are generations behind us, and I am saying if we are the generation that gets to see the fulfillment, we better step up and do it. Because grandparents and great-grandparents of this church and in this region have fought long and hard and were faithful when they saw no grapes. And if we get to see the grapes, what is to come? Oh, it is way better. But do not let us, do not let us make mockery of their work. So let me say these things. We learned last week that we are coming together as a community we heard out of the book of Ephesians, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. This is a prayer as a church that we together will go in and say, yes, Lord, nothing less than the whole promise. Nothing less than the whole promise you gave. It is about saying, God, your glory, not ours. Our freedom because you love us. And we want our family and neighborhood and Durham to know that there is a real God among us. That is our prayer in this church. So here's where I end. And I want you to catch this, please. You're taking notes. Take them now. Let me say this. Number one, the land is good. Forget what you think about me as a person or our history. Listen, the land is good. Revival is a, oh my goodness, it's so good. Personal renewal is good. Thousands of people, hundreds of people meeting Jesus, it's good. Getting to reach thousands of people. And by the way, you know this because we don't believe bigger churches are better. We're praying that as God shows up in Durham, every church grows. This is good. This is a good land, and I am asking you, I am imploring you as a fellow Christian who is wrestling with God over the future of this region, be a Caleb and be a Joshua. The best is yet to come for this church, and the best is yet to come for this region. The land is good. Do not take your, land, your, your eyes off what we've already seen and what you have experienced. Some of you have experienced and now are wondering, hold on, as they said to that old Ebenezer, Look back and see what God has done. Here's the second thing. The giants are real, but we are not grasshoppers in this church. No, really, the giants are real. What we face down structurally, interpersonally, relationship, keeping us all together, like I say, is just unbelievably hard. Then trying to reach not just hundreds, but thousands. And ch- Look, it, the giants are real. The devil is real. The human heart is resisting Jesus. Yes, but we are not grasshoppers. Because our God is with us. I love when one person wrote, we tend to look at the Israelites' conduct with scorn and contempt. We fault that ancient race with their folly and lack of faith. We're astonished by their fear and failure. Yet the tragic truth is most of us still live our little grasshopper lives in the same way, bound by cynical unbelief. We go on wandering through our wilderness experience, ready? Not daring to trust Jesus completely. We live with one foot trying to follow him with fearless faith and the other finding out every single fact. And in the end, we accomplish nothing. The church is so deeply infiltrated by the world's mindset, finding every single little fact that it becomes impotent. Christians unwittingly and unknowingly subscribe to humanistic technology and tactics trying to do God's work. No, no, it doesn't work that way. We are called to follow after God, not just based on observable facts, but by his promises. I just want to say to you, we are not grasshoppers. The giants facing this church internally and externally are significant. They terrify me. They keep me up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Last night I was wrestling with God and saying, I'm going up in that pulpit again. Are you sure? Are you, sure, are you sure you're with us? Because you better be with us because I'm going to get up and proclaim your name. Please, I beg you. The giants are so big and real. This is crazy. This is Canada, God. This is Durham. 10,000? 
what are you? No, this is, God says, come. We're not grasshoppers in this church, for our Lord is with us. Our Lord is with us, and he's bigger than this. He's bigger than this. And here's the last thing I say, and it's this. Name changes. The greatest temptation we are going to face in this church when God moves in a much more dramatic way is actually pride. We're going to say, look at our church. Look how amazing God's with us, and look at all the people. Even now we struggle with this. Look, look. Let me say something. My prayer up front as we prepare for this and wrestle with this and struggle through this is simple. Oh God, may our name not be Hosea, but Joshua. May this church genuinely give glory to God. God does not share his glory with anybody. And I pray that as a church, we will be able, as God does more and more, to keep going, oh, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. We just get to participate, and we're so pleased. That's the Lord. And, and, and I end with this. Some of you who are wandering, and some of you who are wondering, and some of you who are wrestling, here is my challenge to you. It's very direct as, as one of your spiritual leaders in your life. If you are the person who is actually by nature, by personality, or just by time in life, one of the ten and not one of the two, then I ask you to go before the God of heaven and earth this week. I mean, I'm, I'm instructing you to do this. And you say to him, I'm one of the ten, and you have to change my name because I can't. No, really. You have, you have to move me from Hosea, I save, or I've done it, to you're going to do something. Some of the most powerful testimonies that we will see in this church in the next five, seven years or whatever it is, is when people will stand up and say, I said no to the Lord and he changed my name and now I say yes. God is going to move among us not because we're a big church, a better church, a more intuitive church. God has sovereignly decided to do things. And he is inviting us as a church, one of many of his churches in this region, to say yes Generations of people have prayed in this church and outside of this church for this move. God is coming closer and I implore you as a church, let us stand together around the faithfulness of our God and let us act together. And that will come as we prompt and plan. Dave's bringing a strategic plan in May that's going to outline significant moves. I'm just saying to you, friends, friends, the heart before the planning, say to the Lord, yes. Lord, we come before you, the same God that met with Moses, the same God that inspired Joshua. And we are saying that it's not by might or by our power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. We are here saying that actually this is very uncomfortable, it's very exciting, it's risk, it's not. But here's our prayer. Lord, oh, how Durham needs to know there is a living God that will not be boxed how the church needs this. And so in great humility, great humility, we pray, Lord, would you bring a revival in this church that is so undeniably you that people will go, that's the Lord. We pray that every child and every teenager and every young adult and every adult, no matter our age, would encounter Jesus in this season in a way that you've started. We pray Second Chronicles 5, O Spirit of God, come upon all the people. We pray, O Lord, out of Second Corinthians 5, that the Lordship of Jesus would grow in this church because every time the Holy Spirit comes, we become like Jesus. Holy Spirit, grow the Lordship of Jesus in this church. 
And lastly, we pray that you would give us the great privilege and opportunity of reaching thousands of people. We pray for the awakening of Durham. We pray, Lord, that other churches would be deeply impacted by your move. And we pray that thousands of people would end up in eternity because of this season that you've ordained. God, give us humility. God, give us courage. God, overcome our cynicism and our unbelief. God, keep us together as we move into this promised land. God, help us to honor the prayers of the past and the faithful work of people. And Lord, now in this present, help us to move from tasting grapes to walking in and taking nothing less than the whole deal. I ask this in the name of God the Father who ordains all things, God the Son who is our Savior, our High Priest, and our Brother, and in the name of the Holy Spirit who will empower us to do things that are not natural. Amen, amen, and amen. Thank you.